Um, we are going to continue in our sermon series looking at repentance by studying particular prayers of repentance in Scripture. A couple of weeks ago, we saw uh, the personal side of repentance, how personal it is face-to-face by looking at Job's prayer. Last week, we saw the corporate side of confession, being invited to confess the sins of community, maybe sins you weren't a part of, dismantling the legacy of sin that you inherit from your community. And this morning, what we're going to see is how powerful repentance is to transform our lives, right? The transformational nature of repentance by looking at this prayer from Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, a man who was called to bring God's word to God's people. And in the sixth chapter of his book, he records for us uh, an experience that he had, an interaction uh, that changed his life, set him off on his lifelong mission to declare God's word. So before we start, uh, let me ask you this question. When you feel guilty, when you mess up, when you sin, when you have to apologize, Maybe when you're caught sinning, what's your natural reaction? How do you want to respond? Let's listen to God's word and see how Isaiah responds. This morning our passage comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, please. God, this morning, as we come to you, we feel uh, disconnected. We feel odd. It seems like chaos is running everything. But we thank you that we know for sure that you are on the throne, that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And we thank you that in your faithfulness, you are committed to speak to us even though we are not gathered together as we normally are. We are thankful that it is your spirit that accompanies the reading and the preaching of the word to make it powerful in us. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to each of us this morning, wherever we are at, to help us not only hear your words for us from Isaiah, but to be changed by them, to believe the gospel contained herein so that we might be different, renewed with new life. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. 
And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Two summers ago, we had to get a new car. My old one died, and if you know anything about me, making a purchase of that amount is a struggle. It took us several months. I looked everywhere. We were comparing prices and makes and models and mileage, all that kind of stuff. After all those months, Nicole finally found one that fit in our budget. It was close by. It had good mileage on it. It was up in Oakland. So we drove all the way up to Oakland, bought the car. A couple days later, I spent six hours in line at the DMV getting the title and the registration plates, all that kind of stuff. And then it was ours. And it's a Hyundai Sonata, probably the largest car that I've ever owned. I love it because I actually fit in it. And it was great for two weeks. And then as I was sitting in line at a red light on Moore Park, underneath the Highway 17 overpass, I heard the screeching of tires. And I looked up in the rearview mirror just in time to see a Honda Civic plow into the back of the VW behind me, which caused it to shoot forward into the back of my car. If you've never been in a fender bender like that, it it is somewhat hard to explain because it's an odd, uh, very visceral experience. Like it happens instantaneously, but it also feels like it takes forever for it to occur. And because the adrenaline just dumps into your system, your emotions are everywhere. Like you're immediately angry, but then you're also very concerned. Is everybody okay? And you're scared and upset. You kind of just want to curl up into a ball. But at the same time, you're very cautious because there's cars everywhere. You don't want to get hit. You want to make sure that, that people passing by know that this wasn't your fault. You want them to see so that you can be justified. But at the same time, you just want to hide, right? It's a very odd experience. It's a very unique thing. And what's even more interesting is I've noticed how it has changed my driving, even in the last year and a half. When I pull up to a stop sign or a red light, my first response when I push the brake is to look in the rearview mirror to see if there's a car behind me, right? I'm more apt to go through an intersection on an orange. And these aren't conscious decisions that I'm making. I'm not thinking, oh, I need to look in the mirror in order to prepare myself in case a car is coming behind me like the one time when I was hit. That's not how it works, right? There's just an autonomic reaction to this incredible experience that I had. Multiply that by 100, and that's what we see happening in the life of Isaiah in our passage. In these nine short verses, we see an incredible transformation in Isaiah's life, and it all centers around repentance. Now, Isaiah's prayer doesn't exactly look like Job's prayer or Nehemiah's prayer. It's not as long, first of all, and it doesn't actually have the word repent in it. But what we see here is that God brings Isaiah through a process of repentance, and it changes who he is, and it changes his life's goal. It sends him out to go and bring God's word to God's people. It's a huge change for him. And to be honest, when we spend time repenting in the service, when I repent of my sins personally, I don't feel that kind of change. Maybe you do, but I suspect, based on my interactions with you, you don't either. We come in every week. We confess our sins corporately. We spend time silently confessing our individual sins. And then we hear the gospel proclaim to us that God forgives us and he cleanses us through the sacrifice of his son. But I don't leave that experience a different person. And that leads me to ask the question, why not? Why don't you? 
Why does Isaiah get to experience this kind of change? What kind of change does he experience, first of all? And and what am I missing out on? What is God withholding from me? What do I need to do in order to be changed the way that Isaiah is changed? Well, what we see in Isaiah 6 is that his repentance is actually a reaction to God's first action, right? God initiates action always. With all of his people, not just Isaiah, God is the one who initiates. He moves first and he draws his people into repentance. That's what we see here in Isaiah, right? God moves three times in this passage, initiates three specific actions with Isaiah. And conveniently, those are the three things that we're going to look at this morning, these three actions of God. The first is that God reveals his holiness to Isaiah, And then God cleanses Isaiah's sin, and then God invites Isaiah to participate. These are the three things we see God doing. God reveals, God cleanses, and God invites. Those are our three points this morning. Everything starts when God reveals his holiness to Isaiah by bringing him in to the heavenly dwelling place of God. Isaiah enters the throne room. And conveniently, God's heavenly throne room, his heavenly dwelling place, looks a whole lot like his earthly dwelling place, the temple that he had his people build in Jerusalem. So Isaiah instantly knows where he's at. This is what he says, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What's always struck me as odd, uh, stands out a little bit, is that Isaiah doesn't describe the Lord here. He doesn't. He doesn't say, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne. He was about 5 foot 11, dark hair, you know, not, not remarkable features, but man, did he have a really cool crown on it. He doesn't talk about the Lord at all. The, the gospel according to John tells us that Isaiah here is seeing Jesus sitting on the throne, but, but Isaiah doesn't talk about that. Instead, he describes everything else that he is seeing Because everything else around him points to the fact that God is holy. This Hebrew word for holy, kadosh, it it means uh, heavy in terms of a separation, right? Like there is a, a weightiness to God, so much so that it separates him from other people, from everything else. Right? This, is, this is God being completely different in the sense particularly of his moral purity. So everything that Isaiah is seeing is pointing to the fact that God, the perfect one, is high above everything else. And in particular, it's these angelic beings that point us to God's holiness, these seraphim. Right? These are created by God, but they're not human, which means they haven't inherited any sin. They haven't done anything wrong, and yet they know they don't deserve to be in his presence. Isaiah sees them with six wings. Two, they cover their eyes because they are unworthy to look upon the glory of God. Two, they cover their feet because they are unworthy to be in his presence. And yet with two, they fly so that they can be near him and serve him when he commands them to. And they don't just stand there, but they're singing to each other. They're calling out back and forth so loudly that the thresholds are shaking, that smoke is filling this heavenly temple at their song. And what do they sing? Verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. Now, in Hebrew, 
repetition is used in order to, to show magnitude, right? So, uh, for example, in Genesis, when God tells Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree you want in the whole garden, uh, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will, in Hebrew, die, die, right? It shows the magnitude of the punishment. It's not just a physical death, but it is an eternal death. We have it translated for us most often, you will surely die. Well, here in verse 3 is one of the few, incredibly few instances in Hebrew scripture that we see a triple repetition. Holy, holy, holy. God isn't just kind of separate. He isn't just kind of morally pure. He is super abundantly morally pure. So, why don't we have it translated that way for us? Why doesn't it say, super abundantly holy is God? Well, first of all, it, we'd have to go back and rewrite a bunch of hymns. Um, but second of all, because it's not just um, magnitude that repetition communicates, it also communicates completeness. So in speaking this three times, there are some really good arguments suggesting that the seraphim are commenting on the fact that each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are holy themselves. So God isn't just super abundantly holy, he is completely, perfectly holy in every way. Now, maybe you don't see that there, maybe you don't like those arguments, maybe you don't even care. But the point here is that everything Isaiah is experiencing is pointing to the fact that God is morally perfect in every way, so much so that he is far and above everything else. He is holy. And Isaiah responds, as anyone in his position would, as, you, as only you can. Nope, I can't be here. I cannot be here. I am lost, is what he says. Faced with the magnitude of God's holiness, he is distraught. If you've ever been to the Rotary Park over on Coleman Avenue, you know that they've got those awesome like 20, 25 foot concrete slides. The first time that we ever went there, Michaela was about four years old and she climbed up the little climbing wall thing next to it and there was this moment at the top where she looks down at the slide and realizes the magnitude of this slide and how small she is and her response was natural. Nope. And she turned and she just walked away. She didn't go down the slide the first time. Now, she loves it now. I love it now. I go down the slide now. But there was a moment where she realized that this was too much for her, that she was incapable of doing it in that moment. And so she said, nope, I'm lost. I'm done. This is the beginning of repentance that we see from Isaiah, a recognition of his inability to be present with God, right? And a recognition of the depth to which he's fallen, right? Re repentance begins in comparison, right? In order to know that we've messed up, we, we have to compare our actions to what was expected of us. And I think one of the reasons we don't experience transformation from repentance is because we're comparing our actions to the wrong things, we like to compare our, our actions to what someone who is uh, in our situation, a normal person in our situation, how they would respond. So when it's time for us to repent, we might say something like, I'm really sorry that I yelled at you, but I, I was just defending myself, right? We're, we're thinking anybody who was attacked the way I was probably would have responded pretty similarly. I shouldn't have yelled and that was wrong, but it wasn't, you know, it, I was attacked. What do you want? 
Or we compare ourselves to other people around us. Sure, I might have done something wrong, but I'm not going out and getting drunk every night. I'm not having an affair on my spouse. I'm not stealing money from my company. Right? We compare ourselves to these wrong things, and it minimizes our sin. So when we recognize our sin, when we feel guilty, we don't respond with, woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. We respond with, eh, wasn't that bad. It could have been a lot worse. I mean, what did you expect me to do? I'm sorry I did it, but I'll try harder next time. What we see from Isaiah is that he has no choice but to compare his own life, his own actions to the holiness and perfection of God in front of him. And to be fair, throughout the whole Old Testament, God tells his people, the nation of Israel, be holy as I am holy. And that requirement doesn't change just because God's people are no longer a nation, they're a church. God still requires his people to be holy as he is holy. That's the comparison that we should be making. That's the bar that we should see as a requirement for ourselves that we have fallen from in our sin. Now that's great. You might say, Stephen, that's awesome. But you know what? God hasn't exactly revealed his holiness to me this way. He's never invited me into the heavenly throne room. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to know what his holiness is like? Well, there's two things. The first is that we see in scripture that we should ask him for that. We should pray and we should ask that God would reveal his holiness to us. But let's be clear. If you pray and ask God for a better understanding of the depth of your sin... By him revealing his holiness to you, you you better be prepared because chances are he's going to say yes. And that's not a very comfortable position to be in. In fact, it might lead you to say, woe is me. The second thing that we can do is begin to listen, right? We have to come to the place where we acknowledge that every human being is made in the image of God is able to sense right and wrong, which means that when somebody comes to us and says, hey, I'm concerned when I saw you do this thing. You treated me this way and it hurt. I'm worried about your actions doing this. Instead of dismissing them, we need our hearts to begin to have ears that say, this person could be pointing out the depth of my sin. God could be using his image in this person to show me how far I've fallen. Pray and listen. Now, Those are two incredibly uncomfortable things because they lead us to a place where we are undone, where we are broken by our sin. And that's why it's incredibly important for us to see that God moves again. God reveals his holiness, bringing Isaiah to a point of brokenness, but then God moves again by cleansing Isaiah's sin. Isaiah doesn't ask God. He doesn't say, I'm a man of unclean lips. Can you help me out with that? God just does it by sending a seraphim. Verse Six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. That does not sound pleasant. When I was nine or ten years old, my family took a trip to Six Flags over Georgia, which is in Atlanta, on the other side of the nation. We stayed in a hotel just outside the park, and the morning that we were going to go to ride the rides, I was getting ready, brushing my teeth at the bathroom counter, and I was going to turn the water off of the faucet, and my hand bumped something there. 
And as it was falling into the sink, my natural reaction was to prevent it from falling into the sink. So I reached out and grabbed it. It didn't touch the water at all, but it also was my mom's curling iron, which was incredibly uncomfortable. I dropped it. I screamed. It wasn't good. Um, If you've ever burned yourself like that, you know that it's different than a cut or a scrape, right? It heals differently than a cut or a scrape. The scab that forms over a cut is there so that the skin can be knitted back together underneath. But when you burn yourself, uh, it blisters, it maybe even forms a scab, but the new skin is already there. The fresh new skin is right underneath, and if that blister peels off, or in time that scab peels off, the new skin is there ready to go. That's what Isaiah is experiencing on his lips, a, a renewing through pain through this fire. But notice, it's more than just his lips. Verse 7, after the seraphim touches his mouth, he says this, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. He didn't say, Behold, this has touched your lips, and now your lips are clean. He says, Your sins are atoned for. This is really important. See, God's cleansing doesn't just address the sin you see, right? Isaiah confessed what he knew to be wrong. He was hearing these seraphims sing praises and he recognized, I can't do that because my lips are unclean. My, the people's lips that I live among are unclean. He confessed what he knew, but God cleansed him all the way down throughout his whole being. His sin was atoned for and his guilt was taken away immediately Right? These verbs here are connected to each other and they're happening simultaneously and they happened simultaneously. The coal was touched to his lips and his guilt was taken away. Not just the uncleanliness of his lips, but all the way down. What can do that? What kind of coal can clean you all the way down? Well, it says it was a coal from the altar. Now, this altar was a, a big basin basically in the temple that was on fire all the time and we think of fire sometimes as cleansing right like prescribed burns in a forest to clean out the underbrush to prevent a forest fire or fire used to purify gold or silver but the altar fire was a symbol of God's wrath against sin so when a sacrificial animal was thrown on the altar to be burned up it showed God's wrath burning away the sin that had been put on that animal this wasn't a pleasant experience physically or spiritually for Isaiah it was only through the searing pain of God's wrath against sin that we can be clean you and I Now that's terrifying. If you're following along, so far I've told you that you have to come to an understanding of the depth of your sin so that you are broken over it, so that you weep over it. And now I'm telling you that when you get there, you have to experience the fullness of wrath, of God's wrath against sin. Well, thankfully, God in his mercy took that on himself. Jesus exchanged his perfectly clean record for our uncleanness so that God's wrath against sin was poured out on him on the cross. Not just one coal, but the whole altar of God's wrath poured out on Jesus for us so that we are not now cleaned by fire, but we're cleaned by Jesus' blood. What an amazing substitute. And the blood of Jesus, like the coal seen here, is a once-for-all thing. 
which means when you come and accept Jesus' sacrifice, his death and resurrection for you, you are cleaned all the way down. And it, it's important for us to know that. And it's tempting, tempting for us to just stay there and know the depth of our sin and the height of God's mercy for us and, and just go on with our life. But that's why we have to see that God moves again. God reveals his holiness, God cleans Isaiah's lips, and then God invites Isaiah to participate. The third time God initiates with Isaiah, he doesn't say, okay, now I've cleaned you, you're all clean, everything's good, you have to go do something. Right? He doesn't say, Isaiah, a clean person should really be offering to do something for God. God asks a question, and it's an open-ended question. He's not pushing Isaiah to do this. He says in verse 8, God asks, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, Isaiah doesn't wait to hear where he's going or what he's going to be doing. He just responds, right here, pick me. I'm here. I'm ready. Send me. What a change. What a change in Isaiah's life. Previously, just upon seeing the Lord of hosts, not interacting with him, not talking to him at all, Isaiah says, I'm done. I'm lost in terms of death. Like, I am, I'm out of this. I don't deserve to be here. And now he responds with uh, confidence, with eagerness to live completely differently. Some might say to live for a story bigger than his own. Why? Why change this way? It's because of his experience with the radical grace and mercy of God. See, Isaiah got a taste of the reality of his spiritual state. He recognized death, the death that he deserved because of his sin. And instead, he was given mercy and pardon and new life. And it propels Isaiah outward. It sends him in whatever capacity God might have him serve to go serve. And it just so happens that God has some words he would like Isaiah to bring to his people. Right? This is repentance working its way out in our lives, sending us to go and to serve God in whatever way he has called us to, right? Experiencing God's forgiveness, uh, the understanding the depth of our sin, the height of his mercy sends us out as we respond to God's invitation, no matter where that might be. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, Stephen. God's going to invite me to serve him, right? So he's going to ask me to like do something crazy, I want to know what it is first. I don't want to just say yes. Maybe he's going to invite me to go uh, be an English teacher in a poor country. Maybe he's going to invite me to have to move back home and take care of my parents. Maybe, Maybe he's going to invite me to just stay where I'm at and be single my whole life, to just stay where I'm at and never experience having children. Yeah, all those are possibilities. And being hesitant and afraid to accept God's invitation is only natural. Because who knows? Who knows how God is going to call you to serve someone in in this one moment or for the rest of your life. But it's that fear and that hesitation that God meets with a reminder of his grace and mercy. He doesn't say, get over it. He says, remember. Remember what I did when you were at the bottom. How I cared for you how I was gracious to you, how I was merciful to you, a reminder that then propels us out 
forward. It's this change that we see in Isaiah. It comes from a recognition of the true depravity of our hearts, right? To see the full measure of God's grace extended to us and then the taking up of a noble, radically different life, different from the life we lived before, to live the life God has planned for you, right? It's this change, this transformation that our culture, our people are obsessed with, It fills our stories, our books, our movies, everything, this idea of a transformed life. I mean, think about it in in the story of Ebenezer Scrooge in Dickens' Christmas Carol, or the story of Jean Valjean in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, right? Or perhaps the seminal work of change in the life of someone, Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. If you haven't seen the movie, Will Ferrell plays a NASCAR driver obsessed with going fast. His life uh, motto is, if you're not first, you're last. And everyone and everything in his life are there to serve his need to win. His friends, the people who work on his car, his racing team, his wife, his kids, they're only there to support him winning. But he has this incredibly visceral, powerful, humbling experience, a crash, an emotional breakdown. He's kicked off his racing team. Uh, He's banned from NASCAR. His wife leaves him for his best friend. He is reduced to nothing. But his mom and his former assistant stick with him. They believe in him and they extend to him grace and mercy at the bottom when he has nothing left to offer. And it's their commitment to him that leads him back to the track for one last race. And he's changed. So he can celebrate, not only celebrate his friend's victory, but apologize to his friends and his family for taking advantage of them, taking them for granted. Now, don't get me wrong, don't be confused. It is a comedy, it's making fun of this whole scenario, but it contains some amazing truth. That being humbled, broken down to the lowest point, and in that point being shown incredible mercy, changes how you see yourself, how you see others. It changes how you live. Isaiah isn't a special case. God moves towards his people in these ways today. God reveals his holiness. God cleanses our sin, and God invites us to live not for ourselves, but for him and for those that bear his image, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family, God moves in these ways. How will you respond? Let's pray together. God, we can't thank you enough for initiating with us, for stepping up. We know and we admit and confess that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, sins and you brought us back to life. That the action of, new, of renewing life, of redemption, is all yours. And we thank you that you have given it to us through, freely through the death and resurrection of your son. We ask now that you would help us see the depth of our sin. That you would embolden us to be able to go out and live as you have called us to live. We pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.